All right. Thank you so much, worship team. Uh, we serve a strong and powerful God, don't we? There we go. Looking for a little more than that. There we go. That's true. It's true. It's true because sometimes the weight of our life feels like that's all there is. And when we come to worship, we come to, to bring and we come with that, but we come to lay it before an all-powerful God who sees all and more than what we can even ever imagine. So good to be with you here this morning. Well, you found us in part two of a five-part series called Tattered Life, Timeless Legacy. And this series uh, is really on the, the life of King David. And the reason we call it Tattered Life and Timeless Legacy is because David is a man full of paradoxes, a man of incredible, incredible character whose legacy is timeless, who we name our children David honestly because of him. We, we don't name our kids Saul usually or, or, or any other traitor, let's say, in the Bible because of their character, but we name our kids David because of this king. But David's life, even though he was a man of great character, was also a man, ironically, and this should give us all great hope, he was a man of deep sin, uh, we, we, you, you know some of the story of David. He, he slept with another woman. He slept with another man's wife. And then he had that man killed. Right? And then he became a passive, indifferent father. He didn't even know what was going on within, within his own family. He was a man of deep sin and deep failure. Enough sin that would have derailed most all of us here and significantly impacted our reputation, our legacy. But somehow, there's something about David's tattered life that created a timeless legacy. And what in the world is that? And what can we learn both about the man and about the God that he served? Because it's the story of the deeper grace of God through the life of David that is worth looking at. And it's worth looking at this man. So last week we looked at the beginning of the story of David. If you were here last week or you listened online in between last week and this week, you learned that David was chosen by God's grace as the smallest or the youngest of the family of Jesse of Bethlehem. And that David's father basically considered him not even worthy of being in the presence of the prophet Samuel when Samuel came to consecrate their family. His dad, David's dad, thought he's the smallest, he's out in the field, nothing big will happen if David is here anyway, so he can be out there, and he dismissed his son even as one of his own. And yet David was the man that God chose for this role. Incredible story. This week, we're going to get into one of perhaps the most famous stories in all of the Bible. In fact, if you haven't even read your Bible for 50 years, or you don't even own a Bible, and you're just here this morning exploring the, the, the claims of Christianity, you have heard of this story because it's been told over and over and over and over and over again. And it's a story of David and Goliath. Isn't that awesome? So, since we all know it, we can either all be dismissed now, don't raise your hand if you want to do that, all right? Or we can get into a story that we think we know, and here's my belief, that the stories that we think we know have the greatest truths if we're ready to come at them from another angle. So if you have your Bible, why don't you go ahead and turn there right now while I kind of set the stage for this. The book is 1 Samuel, the chapter is 17. If you don't have a Bible or own a Bible, um, there is a Bible in the pew right around you there, the red book. You'll find it in the Old Testament. You can look through the Old Testament there to get to the ninth book of the Old Testament, which is 1 Samuel chapter 17. I use the New International Version or the NIV. And as you land there, um, here's the stage that is being set. 
We are opening up in chapter 17 on a great battlefield that is about to be played out right in front of us with, if you can, if you can imagine this now, we have a valley out in front of us and we're viewing this great vista. It's a mile wide valley, the valley of Elah. Um, in this mile wide valley, we have a riverbed running through the middle of that. That riverbed actually was the place that we believe that David ended up getting the stones that he used to put into his sling. He got five, only needed one. And this valley on both sides, it will rise up on this side to a slope about a half a mile long to a, a mountain or right up in this area, right? And then you come down here and there's this mile-wide valley and then on the other side, another about a half a mile slope over here. If you live locally, just imagine taking the Welsh Mountain and the Gap Hills and just bringing them together until they're about a mile apart, okay? And then putting a little riverbed in between them. And on this side over here, we have the Philistine army gathered and encamped at a high point on this side of the valley over here. And on the other side, a mile in the valley and a half a mile on either side there of the, the slopes, we have the Israelite army over here. And so picture the battlefield and here's where it is. You can see your enemy on a clear day and most days would be clear but they're far enough away where nothing that they can launch will get you. You can eat your meal in peace, but you know they're right over there. The stage is this. There's a, a, a battle about to take place, and you know the story of Goliath, that Goliath became this great intimidator of a man from the Philistine army who was an unusual, unusual man. When they would line up, and here's how it worked, these two great armies would line up for battle every day. And this is hard to imagine this, but imagine you're getting geared up for battle every day, and you're all, you're all geared up in your armor. You have your, your spear or your javelin, depending on who you are. You have your, your armor that you're getting all clipped in and buckled into and everything like that. And you go up with war cries, the text will tell us, with war cries, you're going up to the line, essentially almost the line where your slope comes down. And the Philistines are going to do the same thing. And now we have these armies every day moving down with battle cries. And you can imagine the adrenaline and the emotion that's involved in each one of these because today might be the day where the battle begins. And you need to be ready to fight. This is not just for a, a principle or a budget or a goal for your company. This is a fight now for your life. Right? This, is, this, is, this is the real deal. And what would happen every day is that this man, Goliath, this giant of a man, and we understand him to be about nine feet, nine inches tall. Amazing. Amazing height. He would step out from behind the Philistine line, and he would stand there, and he would taunt the people of Israel. And here's what you would see if you're a soldier looking at him. You would see a man... Not only is he massive in height, he's massive in strength. His armor alone would weigh about 200 pounds. Right? Now imagine carrying around armor of 200 pounds and being flexible enough, fluid enough, fast enough to fight well to the death. His armor would have an undergarment of like a canvas material with um, interlocking bronze uh, rings around it that would go from the shoulders down to the knees. And then on top of that, that's just the weight of that main piece of armor. Then on top of that, he has this big bronze helmet. I don't know how big his head was, but I assume it was rather big. Poor mom, right? So he puts this helmet on, this big bronze helmet, 
And then he has these bronze, I'll call them shin guards, they're actually called greaves, but bronze shin guards that cover these massive shins to take it from the knee on down. And then he has the spear or the javelin, and the Bible will tell us that the tip of it alone, the tip of that spear alone weighs about 20 pounds. In front of Goliath goes another man, his armor bearer, who carries a shield the height of a full man. And so if you are thinking about Goliath, and you are thinking, should I take on this man? You are facing not only his armor bearer with a shield walking in front of him, you are now facing this giant of a man, decked out in armor that you and I probably could not even bench press a few times. And he says, who's your God? Who's your God? Let's read Goliath's words in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 8. He stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel on the other side of the riverbed on this valley, Why do you come out and line up for battle? What a waste of time. Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. And then the Philistine said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. And what would you do? What would you do? You gear up for battle? You believe in God, right? You believe in his strength, right? You believe God can do the impossible? You willing to put your life on the line for that? In all seriousness, what would you do? Because that's the issue for each of the soldiers in that moment. He's just defied you and defied the God that you represent. This is about, is God real or not? Is my faith in him real or not? Here's a giant of a man. He says, come on out. I don't believe your God is real. What do you got? And here's the reaction of the Israelites. Verse 11. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were, and then read this if you have NIV with me, were dismayed and terrified. Read that again with me. They were dismayed and terrified. In other words, they said, this is impossible, and we're afraid. This is impossible, and I'm afraid. And have you ever said, this is impossible, and, and I'm afraid? Have you ever had those moments where your past comes back to remind you of your failures? And you think you're never going to get through it and your past is screaming at you across the valley and say, come on. Who do you think you are being a Christian? Who do you think you are being someone who can claim the name of God? I know what you've done in the secret moments that no one else does. Who is your God? Can he really forgive? And you're dismayed and terrified. This is impossible to get away from this. And I'm afraid of the future. Have you ever felt that your past or your present or your future is so impossible to face 
that your faith cannot get you over that? I know we're talking about a story of a, of a real giant facing a real army at a real place in time, but here's what the Israelites were feeling. They were feeling like, the faith that I have only goes so far, and I can't go that far. And if you're going to ask me, if you're going to ask me to believe that my future can be different, if you're going to ask me to believe that my marriage that has been this way for so long can be different. It is a giant that is coming at me, and I am terrified of what a different future might look like. In fact, I don't believe that it can happen. I'm dismayed, and I'm terrified. This is impossible for me to think about my family changing. This is impossible for me to think about me changing. This is impossible for me to think about anything different happening for me. This is impossible for me to think about me making the kind of difference that I think God wants me to make. It's, impo it's impossible. I'm terrified. I hope someone goes out there and takes care of that giant. I hope somebody does that. I hope someone goes out and does that. Meanwhile, here's what happens. When you don't deal with the giant right away, it comes back and back and back and back and back. And it doesn't go away, does it? It's like that bad creak in your car that you hope will go away all by itself. It doesn't. We need to get it dealt with. Meanwhile, as the scene shifts from the battlefield over to a few miles away, there's a man named Jesse, father of David and the father of three of the soldiers in the Israelite army. And he says to David, hey David, come here. I want you to take some food, some refreshments to the people in the, the battle. Basically, David, can you be the water boy for the soldiers here? And I'm going to give you some grain, and I'm going to give you some, some bread, and uh, some drinks, some refreshment for, for the soldiers. And um, hey, for those in charge, I'm going to give them cheese. If you're a cheese person, here's a biblical theology of cheese for you. I don't know what that's about, all right? But he gave them ten different kinds of cheese, a veritable cheese buffet for all the generals in the army. I don't know what that's about, but there you go. So there we go. So David comes into the battle, meanwhile. He comes into the battle with all this food. And here's what happens. Goliath comes out as David is there, and Goliath comes out for what ends up being, I believe, if my math is right, the 81st time that, David issue, that Goliath issues this challenge. Because for 40 days, twice a day, Goliath would come out and issue this challenge before the Israelites. And finally, David is there. And at least the 81st time. And here's what happens in verse 24. This is what the Israelites do. <laughs> if we read the text carefully, we'll see something important. When the Israelites saw the man, meaning Goliath, in fact, they didn't even hear him anymore. We know what he's going to say. Oh, here comes the big guy. They all ran from him in great fear because that's what you get conditioned to do with giants when you don't deal with them. Here it comes again. I'm going to go away because this is impossible and I'm afraid. And when things are impossible and you're afraid, this is what we do. We run. Now check it out. David hears him give his insults. And here's what David does in verse 26. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Isn't that an interesting question? He doesn't ask, guys, how do you think we can do this? 
Do you see the confidence even in the question? In other words, there will be a man who will do this. What will happen when it happens? There isn't a question about it for him. And then he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? You see, Goliath is big, but for David, you know this, God is bigger. Goliath is huge, but God is all-powerful. And so David stands there and is like, who is this man? Are you kidding me? Who is this guy who stands here? Now, here's the interesting thing. This is, while it's the 81st time that the Israelite army heard this, this is the first time that David heard it. This is the first time that he had a chance to respond. You want to talk about a man of character. Here is a leader, someone who immediately sees what needs to be done and with courage moves into that. Regardless of the fear they may feel in their heart, on the first time, they don't have 20-20 hindsight vision, they have 20-20 present sight vision. They see it and they do it for the first time. Because they know if I don't deal with the giant, it's just going to keep coming back. We need to deal with this. Who's going to do this, he says. (laughs) Meanwhile, and something very important happens now. Meanwhile, David's older brother, Eliab, hears what's going on. And Eliab, check out verse 28. Eliab is not a fan. Eliab, David's older brother, heard him speaking with the men, and he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? Remember those couple little sheep, David, that you take care of? Those Just a little bit of stuff that you have responsibility for? Who did you leave those little things with in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. You were bored. You needed to see real men do real work because you just take care of these little sheep in the desert. (laughs) Ever have a sibling? (laughs) Here's Eliab. And here's what happens to Eliab. When you do not fight the right enemies, you start making up things to fight with other people about. Eliab's criticism of David is a profound moment for him. Because this is a time where David could spend an undue amount of time responding to the criticism of Eliab and turn his attention from the real enemy. Because here's another enemy in the camp, and it's his brother. You ever been criticized by someone who should be a supporter? You've been criticized by someone behind the same lines as you. The most critical people are the most insecure people. And we know that, don't we? Because they're fighting the wrong battles. Eliab is angry, but not just because of David's confidence, but Eliab is angry because of his own insecurity, because of his own fear. Because 80 times he heard Goliath issue the challenge, and 80 times he joined the army in running away. And now the first time, my little brother, who I could always beat up, shows up and he starts talking with this kind of confidence. He's so conceited. No, he's actually right. And you have a problem, Eliab. And this is an important moment for David because how do you respond to the critic who wants you to start fighting a battle that you shouldn't fight? David shouldn't fight this right now. And here's what David does, very important moment. Verse 29, he asks the question, Now what have I done? You ever been there? Now what? We're always, now what have I done? Can I even speak? Verse 30, he then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. He stops, he turns to Eliab, and he said, Eliab, now what? 
Can I even have a conversation? And then he ignores him. How's that for spiritual guidance? He ignores him. He ignores the critic. He doesn't resolve it. And he lets Eliab stew. And that was the right thing to do. Eliab, I, I have bigger things to do and so should you. Come on. You know this, right? That the people who are most critical of you, what they want to do is they want to rip away your confidence, your faith, your belief, your vision because they are insecure about their own life. And you, you know this. You've experienced this. We just want to be careful with the critic that we respond and move on. Respond and keep your vision. Keep the mission in line. This is what David did. Now, here's what happens next. What happens with, with David is that his talking gets communicated to Saul. So check out verse 31. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go fight him. Isn't that an amazing statement? David says to Saul, let no one lose heart. Well, actually, David, everyone has lost heart for a long time. For like a month and a half, we have all lost heart. We lost heart a long time ago. We have been thinking for a long, long time, this is impossible, and I'm afraid. We've been thinking that. We're dismayed and terrified. This is impossible, I'm afraid. We've been there for a long time. And David says, I can see that you have lost your heart. Saul, let me go and restore the confidence in the God of the nation of Israel. Let no one lose heart on account of this man. And you know what happens next? Saul is like, well, okay, if you want to go, you know, sure. And he gives him his armor to try on, and you know Saul is head and shoulders above men, is how the Bible describes him. He's a tall man. David is the youngest or the smallest, actually, physically in his family. And so it just doesn't work putting on size 52 pants if you're a 34 or whatever. It just doesn't fit. And you can imagine the bulkiness and awkwardness of David. And David finally says to Saul, I'm sorry, man, I can't. It's not going to work to do this. I, I can't wear your armor. You know, thank you for that, but it's just not going to work. And you know what David does is he goes down to the riverbed in that valley right in between these two slopes in that mile-wide valley. And in there he grabs five smooth stones for his little slingshot a child story that we use now, which has become iconic of what the God of Israel uses to save his people. And then here's what happens. The Philistines line up. The Israelites line up. And they're not lining up like to go get a drink at the water fountain in, in elementary school. Okay? They're not trying to line up as quietly as they can with as much dignity and respect as they can. This is a battlefield. Men will die. Blood will be shed. And they line up with their war cries over here. And the Philistine army, the thousands of them, getting ready for battle. No doubt, banging their spears or swords together, their javelins against their armor, with a war cry, with intensity, with passion and fervor, stirring up their own adrenaline to get ready to fight if they need to, because it's not natural to want to do this. And you have to stir that up within you to get after it like that. And the nation of Israel over here is doing the same thing. And here comes Goliath stepping out, this nine foot nine behemoth of a man stepping out again. And he sees this little kid, David right now is a 20-something. He's a young 20-something. And he has no armor on. And Goliath evidently can see his slingshot. And Goliath is mad. He is mad. 
You finally send somebody out here and this is the man you send? Are you kidding me? You demean me like this? And he begins raining down curses on David and the nation of Israel. This big behemoth of a man yelling across the battlefield that he is going to end it and this man will be, it will be killed today. He is mad. Meanwhile, the Israelites are like, whose idea was this to send David? But you can imagine the anxiety for them not knowing the story. I guess this is it. Finally. Here's David. Now let me ask you, what would you say in a moment like that? If you're David, and you're walking down that slope toward the riverbed, and you know one of you is going to die, you or Goliath, with his armor bearer, one of you is going to die. And what are you going to say? And this is amazing to me. This is amazing to me what David says next. Because you've got to be in the moment. This is, this is, a, this is a high emotion, high intensity moment in the Scriptures. Think Braveheart except for real. Okay? This is let's line them up and let's get ready to rally for the cause. But this is for real. And here's David, a 20-something. And here's what he says. His speech is amazing in verse 45 of chapter 17. And David said to the Philistine, and when you read said, don't just think he was sitting there reading some kind of paper lecturing to him. This is the battlefield, right? People die here. Blood will be shed. And he says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. And you don't know what's going to happen. Isn't that an amazing, amazing confidence from David? I mean... To walk down there to Goliath and say that, a nine foot nine behemoth of a man today, I'm going to cut your head off. And step into that moment with an incredible confidence that the battle is the Lord's. And you know what happens next because you know the story. That David takes his slingshot and as he's running, the story tells us he's running to Goliath. And he takes one shot and hits him in the head. We believe that would have knocked him unconscious or at least maybe killed him, I don't know. But he hits the ground. Now here's little David getting this sword out of the sheath, out of the hand even of, of Goliath. And he cuts his head off. And with that, the Israelite army charges and the Philistine army runs. And the battle belongs to the Lord. And no longer is this impossible. And no longer am I afraid. No longer. And so, here's the story of David and Goliath. This little man with this big man and an even bigger God. So,
me ask you this question. What in your life threatens to make little of your faith? What in your life comes to you morning and evening in regularity and threatens you to make little of your faith? In other words, let me ask it another way this way. What threatens to make you believe that it's, this is impossible and I should be afraid? What threatens to make you feel like the faith that you have isn't good enough, isn't strong enough to handle the fear that you have? What is it that comes to you with regularity? Something from your past that gets imported into your future that only you know about. And it's killing you. And it's taking away your confidence in, in the Lord. Taking away your confidence even in yourself. What in your present is making your future very unclear because you look at your present and you're like, I don't know how this is going to work. What about your future dreams and hopes that you look at and think, boy, I don't, I don't know how we can do this. I, I don't know if this can even be done, God. I don't even know if you're big enough to handle the things that I'd love to see happen. I, I just don't know. What is it that threatens to make little of your faith? What is it that threatens to make you feel regularly like, this is, this is impossible, and, and I'm afraid? You know, what is that? This morning, I want you to get a picture of that. I actually would love for you to write it down. I'd love for you to identify the giant, okay, to identify that which keeps your faith small, that which keeps your faith tame, that which says it can't be done, your past will always be a part of your present and always a part of your future. God will not use someone like you greatly. Not like that. Not with what you've done. Your marriage will always be mediocre or less than mediocre. Your kids will always be this way. Your work will always be like this. Your finances will always be like this. Your impact on this world for my name, for the name of the Lord, will always be minimal. What is it that threatens to make your faith small? Let me ask you this. Another question. Who would you rather be? Who would I rather be? And let me put two people to you, different people than you might expect. Eliab or David? Two people who aren't often talked about in contrast to each other, but what a contrast in this story. Eliab, and here, this is very important, very important principle for you to see here. And if you tuned out for a minute, just tune back in for a second here. Here's what Eliab did. Eliab allowed the things that God has done in his life in the past, to become ancient history. When Eliab looked at Goliath, and he saw this man, he forgot the things that he should have remembered. And he remembered the things he should have forgotten. David, when he went to Saul and said, I'm ready to take this man on, and Saul basically said, give me your resume. Why should I trust you to do this? Because the nation of Israel rests on you. David, and here's the principle, he refused. He refused to allow his past to become ancient history. He refused to allow his past to become ancient history. Because he said to Saul, Saul, in the past, I have killed a lion. I have killed a bear. The hand of God has been upon me. There are things that God has already done for me in my past that I'm remembering in this moment. 
and I'm refusing to let the past become ancient history. Eliab had similar experiences, no doubt. Eliab had even the faithfulness of God on the nation of Israel that he could have looked back on and he could have said there are things that God has done in the past and because of what he's done in the past, I'm going to remember those at the right time and that will give me confidence that anything can happen. But instead, in that moment, he allowed the past to become ancient history and he forgot the things that he should have remembered and he remembered the things he should have forgotten. And isn't this what happens to us? In those moments of crisis, in those moments when we are almost ready to step over the threshold, almost ready to give another try, almost ready to believe that something can be done, you remember something that you should forget. And then you forget things that you should remember. And all you begin thinking about is past failures, past weaknesses, past struggles, past letdowns. And then you don't have the courage to do what God is leading you to do. And David refused to allow his past to become ancient history. He remembered, he remembered the things that God had done. He said, because of that, give me the opportunity, Saul, and I will take this man down. The hand of my God is upon me. I know it. Here's what David believed, ultimately. That the battle is the Lord's. He believed that the battle is the Lord's. He believed that even though I'm looking at this man who's a giant, there's almost no strategy for taking him down that will work. Who is this man that makes little of our faith? Who is this, what is this issue that makes little of my faith? What is this issue that makes little of our God? This isn't about David. This isn't about you. This isn't about me. This message this morning isn't about you, you know, overcoming obstacles, become a millionaire, or overcoming obstacles, buy your dream home somewhere. It's not about how do you overcome issues to become a better person. This message this morning and on David is this message of what in the world is standing between you and expressing a faith in a great God and having that be real enough that when these struggles come of forgiving ourselves, of believing more about our marriage, about our family, about our children, about our future, about our job, about our impact in the world for the sake of the Lord, that we'll look at that and say, that's impossible. And I'm afraid. And David said, man, there's some big things. There's some big things that every day are going to come to you. There's some big things that every morning, every evening are going to come to you and say, who is your God? You can't get over that. You can't get over that. It's a duel. I challenge you. Winner take all. It's better to go back and retreat. Live to fight another day. And the giant gets closer and closer and bigger and bigger and bigger the longer we let it live. So I want to do something a little bold this morning. Are we ready for this? To be like slightly bold? Not even aggressively bold, but can we be moderately bold at least? Here's what I'd like us to do. I'd like us to, in a moment, by a raise of hands, be able to say together, you know, there's something in my life. There's something in my life that every morning, every evening, with regularity, I am letting make little of my faith. There's something that I know I should be addressing. There's something that I need to deal with. That's a giant that keeps coming after me. 
whether it's my own self-doubt, lack of confidence in the faith of our God, but it's keeping me back. It's holding back my faith and belief that God is not just the God of a Bible and a book somewhere, but He's the God of life and my life. How many of us can resonate? By show of hands, all right? It, this is moderately bold, and I, and I get that, because here's, here's the end game for this. I would like us to continue to grow as people in loving and encouraging each other to do great things for our God, to believe great things about our God, and not to allow our faith to be made small. Not about us. Not about our legacy. But it's about the faith in a God that we say is all-powerful. So this morning, if you're saying, man, there's something, I, I, need, I need to step to it. I've got something that is threatening to make my faith small if I don't step into this. I don't know if I can ever do this. I've been fighting this for a while, but I need to do something. Would you raise your hand this morning? Now, with confidence and love for one another, look at one another. And here's what I'd love for you to do. You can put your hands down. now. Here's what I'd love for you to do. We are in this journey together. And that means that what I feel as I raise my own hand, and what you feel as you raise your own hand, is shared by people in front of you, behind you, next to you, in your Sunday school class, in your small group, wherever it might be. Let us, with intentionality and care this week, pray for one another. Touch base with text, email, call, visit. Breakfast, lunch, coffee, Facebook message, private message, whatever. Contact one another and say, hey, love the courage. How can I help you? Love the courage. How can I help you? Because I'm telling you, we are in this together. We're in this thing together. And the battle, and you know this, the battle is the Lord's. There's nothing bigger than Him. Will you pray with me? Our good God and our Heavenly Father, we are men and women, boys and girls, in great need. In great need of a God who invades the space that we often think is just for us. We're in need of You to grow our faith beyond the things that threaten to make our lives irrelevant, that threaten to make us more like Eliab, who nobody remembers, who nobody knows anything about, whose life speaks nothing of the faith of his God. These things threaten to make us like him. Father, I pray that you would give us great grace and courage not to be dismayed, not to be terrified, and not to let our past become ancient history. Help us remember the things that You have done already. And at the right time, remember and not forget that You are a faithful, sovereign King 
who is bigger than any giant that will ever come walking across that valley floor toward us. When you are with us, no one, nothing, can ever stand against us. May these words hit true and hit home that the battle is yours. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.